producers of Jurassic Park. And the director of Speed. Bring you face to face with Twister. Get out of there! Hurry! There's no place to run. There's nowhere to hide. No time to escape. Don't think. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask the ever-important question, is it yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined today by my good buddy, the irredeemable Shag. Thanks for being here, Paul. I, uh, I, I, it was kind of a fast and loose sort of trick you played on me here. I thought I was coming on to the, the Film and Water podcast to talk about <laughs> movies, and uh, I didn't realize I walked in the wrong studio, but that's okay. I can deal with it. You know, I, I feel like I, I kind of pulled the, the long con on this thing. You know, I, I went out of my way. I got Rob to give his blessing to my doing a show, which was very similar to his. You didn't need his blessing. And then I started stealing his people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, Rob has actually been on the show twice, so I, that, that's where I got his blessing. But then, you know, I, I, I talked to Ryan Daly. He says, you know, I always wanted to do the show author, and, and Rob won't let me. So it's like, come on, come on, come on aboard. I wanted to, you know, ask Chris Franklin on. He's like, I always wanted to do Smokey and the Bandit, but Rob won't let me. Come on aboard. Well, today's movie is no different, my friend. I wanted to do this film, and he turned me down. So now, don't think of yourself as like the place where we go when we can't do something else. It's like this is this is the more fun place. You're like you're like the fun dad who lets us hang out and have a good time and do whatever we want. That's what it is. I'm letting you come to the place where there's no rules. Exactly. Rob has rules. He, God, I tell you. And what do you mean you need his blessing? It's not like he invented the movie review podcast idea. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I agree. It's not it's not such a uh, esoteric concept that he had to come up with it but <laughs> but in all fairness I, I found myself listening to the film and water, water podcast frequently right around the time when i was saying i want to do a film podcast and i knew <laughs> the format was somewhat similar i mean i have my little uh you know my jaws scale which makes it right. slightly unique but other than that it's you know it's more of the same and uh, don't tell anybody this out loud, but I kind of feel like Rob does it better than I do. Oh, whatever. Now, there's only he only has two good episodes on that whole feed, and uh, one was the Empire Strikes Back episode, and one was the uh, Joe versus the Volcano episode. Those are the only two we're listening to. Who was his guest star on those? I, I really I can't remember. Huh. <laughs> now, a moment ago, you mentioned smoking the bandit, sir, and I've got words for you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> go I, I re-listened to the Smokey and the Bandit episode again recently, and you did with Chris Franklin. It was a really fun episode, and one of you rated the movie correctly. Um, I'm sorry, like he, he, Chris came down and said the movie was a classic. It was Jaws, and by your scale, my friend, he is correct. You came back with this half half-baked answer you're like you were gonna be all like nice and give it a jaws three kind of crap and then you're like no no i enjoyed this quite a bit i think it's even worthy of jaws two what no smoky and the bandit that movie is pure classic you cannot watch that movie without laughing your butt off that is that is jaws quality i'm sorry i just i don't you were you were out of line there well i do welcome people who don't agree with me no matter how wrong they are <laughs> 
And, but you know what? I watched the movie. I did laugh. But when it was over, I still had a butt. <sighs> I did not laugh my butt off. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but you know, it, it really came down to, and I think we talked about it in the episode, it really came down to that it, it wasn't really my style of movie. That's your problem, so, not the movie's problem. Yeah, well, that's, you know, <laughs> I've always heard, and perhaps you, know, you can correct me on this, <laughs> but I've always heard that rating movies was subjective. <laughs> Except when it's actually really an amazing movie. <laughs> I, you know, I some, think, some people don't think Jaws is that good. And they're just dumb. <laughs> I, I, I think I think uh, Jaws holds up to all objective standards. It's a pretty good movie. I'll give you that. But we did recently cover The Last Shark. So that shows you what, what they make when they try to make Jaws and they don't do it well. <laughs> What was the one with the smart sharks? Um, Sharknado? No. No, no, that should be that. Oh, that movie's awesome. Oh, uh, jeez. I can't remember. Smart sharks? Oh, was, was that the one with uh, Samuel Jackson? Yes, it was. It was. Uh, was it like Deep Blue Sea? Something like that. That'd be fun to contrast with Jaws. <laughs> well, that was that was what the Jack and Eddie boys actually thought when they heard Is It Jaws? They thought the entire concept of the podcast was going to be to talk about and review Jaws ripoff movies. Oh, that would be whole, that would be great actually. Like a whole month of that, that'd be fun. <laughs> I don't mind doing it as the occasional movie, but there's just too many great movies out there to cover. Yeah, like the one we're going to talk about today, which is a great movie and I will brook no other arguments, sir. <laughs> well, we will talk. Oh. But you know, that was something, you know, we you, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit. Shag and I have been talking about trying to podcast something together for for months. The last thing we did was when we talked about uh Squadron Supreme, Squadron Supreme, and yeah. that's got to be over a year ago. That was fun, and, and I really appreciated you doing that. Oh, it was fun for me too. So there was nothing to appreciate. I enjoyed it. Um, but we, you know, we we we've been wanting to do something together, and with you know, scheduling problems aside, it took us a while to find something. And then when we said, okay, let's do it, is it yours? Your question to me was, you know, we could do Twister, which is the movie we're covering, unless you're not really a fan of it. Yeah. And my my re, my response to that, which I didn't tell you at the time, is I don't have to be a fan of the movie to review it. I want to cover movies that are the whole scale, from Jaws Jaws to Jaws Four. I don't necessarily want everything. I don't want it to be okay. This is the show where we just review classic movies. Okay. Now that said, I'm not going to give my review yet, but I, think, I, think I enjoyed this movie. <laughs> I enjoyed this movie. You sure? I had not seen it since 1997 when it was out. Okay. When it first came out on VHS, I saw it. Oh, wow. See, you missed something not seeing it on the big screen. I mean, first, first off, and I realize we're going to break it down, but I, I, I had a little intro I was going to do before you named the film, but that's fine. You've got the whiny guy from Aliens. You've got the wife from Mad About You. You've got the hot girl from Lost Boys. You've got the dread pirate Roberts from Princess Bride. Cameron from Ferris Bueller. The guy who played Capote and the guy who worked the desk on the TV show ER. This movie is packed full of awesome people. It's so good. Well, now, another movie we recently covered was Top Gun. Yeah, I know. Dave Weider got oh, me to watch that. I heard it. Oh, yeah, I heard your episode. Yeah. Reviewed that with him. And I have long said that that movie is the prime example <laughs> of, a, of form over substance. Okay. Now, this movie, if I'm going to critique this, and I don't want to get too in-depth yet. I want to you know, get to this as we go on. This movie has some of that to it. They didn't want to get too deeply into the characters pretty clearly. They, so they, they gave us some kind of stereotypes with a lot of them and said, let's just have fun with these characters. Yes. 
And what you just described to me is why this one is better than Top Gun. Ah, uh, okay. Was they put a cast together of people who you say, all right, you know, we're not getting a lot of character depth here, but these are people who I enjoy watching. Yeah. The, the very, so it makes it more fun to me than Top Gun was. With these quality of actors, they were very uh, – it was very capable shortcutting. I mean, you see Dusty, who, you know, who's played by um, – uh, oh jeez, I don't have my actor list in front of me. A famous guy died just recently. Uh, yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes. You know, he plays Dusty, and within the first couple seconds, you've got Dusty's character down because it, they just convey in a couple of lines, a couple of goofy attitudes. He's the goofy fun guy, right? And mm-hmm. like you said, they don't get deep, but you got what you need. And then they have some fun moments with him through the book, throughout the movie. It's ah, well done. Now I I, I just got a sidetracked. I meant to say, all right, you said you didn't see it in the big screen. This film, I used to work in a movie theater. I was the manager of an AMC for three years, and actually it was from 96 to 98. So this movie came out early on in my days at AMC. And let me tell you, seeing this movie in the theater was an experience. Because, um, first of all, you know, visual, visually it's an impressive film, but seeing it on the big screen is great with those beautiful vistas and the sweeping shots of the camera as they fly over things and then the tornado and all that. But the sound, this was back in the days when like Dolby Digital surround sound and all that stuff was a big deal in the movie theaters at first. And mm-hmm. um, the director actually, when he sent the prints of the film to the movie theaters, now I don't remember this, this part I stole from Wikipedia, but he actually sent a note to the movie theater saying, suggesting they play the film at a higher volume than normal. And I don't know whether my theater got that note or not, but boy, let me tell you, this movie was loud. And the sound the tornado would make, it, the tornado was a, like another character in the film. It made these amazing sounds that in all these digital sound effects that just it would make your skin crawl. I mean, it was like a, a like a, a monster chasing you. Oh, so impressive! Now, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second. I was all, I'm all over the place here. I'm just so excited. I, I remember about this when, movie. when this movie first came out. When I went to watch it on VHS, the big hubbub about it was you got to see the scene with the cow. <laughs> see, it doesn't work if everyone tells you about it. Yeah, well, it didn't work. It works great if no one tells you. (laughs) I have to say, when I saw that scene, I kind of cracked up laughing, just thinking, how stupid is that, to be honest with you. And and there's some fun dialogue there. You're like, cow, and then like, oh, another cow. No, I think that's the same cow. I mean, that's funny. And then when – That is. I give you that. When she's on the phone, she's like, Julia, I got to go. We've got cows. It's just – it works and it's funny. But if someone tells you, you know, that's a great part to watch for, nah, that's going to kill the joke. Yeah, that that did hurt it, knowing it in advance. I'm thinking, I'm thinking you're right. If I had been watching it on the big screen and I had not been forewarned of that scene, I would have appreciated it more. Sure, sure. The funny thing is, you know, uh, they recently closed the Twister uh, attraction at uh, Universal Studios. I know. I didn't realize they closed. I've never seen it. I'm totally two about times. That. Two times I've been to Universal Studios in the last three years. Okay. And two times my daughter said, no, I'm afraid, and we couldn't go in it. Oh, wow, really? So I never did get to experience that particular uh, attraction, and now it's gone. The sad part is I live in Florida, and I've been to Universal Studios a bunch of times, and somehow I never made it to that attraction. Ugh. And now, now what I hear is it wasn't all that scary, but for some reason she got in her head that it was going to be terrifying. Don't they create – didn't they create a tornado in the middle of the room or something like that? I – I don't know. I got the feeling that it's similar to the scene in the movie when they're in the building where it just starts to rip apart. Oh, okay, okay. That's what—that's the impression I got from it. 
but I'm not 100% sure because I never did get to sit through it. Gotcha. All right. Well, you know, we can probably see the whole thing on YouTube. There's probably a YouTube walkthrough, so. Yeah, well, that's how I recently experienced the uh, the King Kong yes. one that they, they recently opened. I did the same I thing. Since <laughs> I did the same thing. And also, once in a while, I'll do the classic Star Tours one as well, just for fun. Yeah, well, that's that's a ride that I've been to through many times, though. So I don't have, you know, I, that's just to re-experience it as opposed to the first time around. Well, you can't do that one anymore, though, because now it's all changed. You know, that's, yeah, the, the old one where you go through the Death Star and everything, all it's all a bunch of other stuff now. So, but now you you say you know you you were working in the theater when this was playing. Yeah, I was I was managing the theaters, and so what we would do is we the films would come in on like Wednesday, and we would. Because they come in canisters. Because if, if you've ever seen the, the film at a movie theater, they're freaking huge. They're like three feet across. Um, mm-hmm. It's massive. And they, it comes in part. They don't send you it in one piece. You have to assemble it. And that's why you see the little you know, the, the little oval. Dot. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that lets you know a new reel starting. So we would have to build them. Uh, we'd have guys, the projectionists would put it together. And then every Thursday night at like midnight after all the other movies were done, we would screen all the movies to make sure that they were fine. There was no reels backwards or messed up or whatever. And so, you know, we would all make a party of it. All the staff would come together on Thursday nights at midnight. We'd all watch the new movies, you know. And uh, the Twister one, I just remember watching it in the theater just like my jaw hanging open, being like, wow. And uh, again, I realize it's just a big, dumb action movie. That's okay. Sometimes it's okay to have, you know, a, a disaster film. A, a, I don't want to. I don't know if I should say Towering Inferno, but I mean, yeah, that, remember in the seventies, the big era of disaster films. Well, the nineties brought all that back with, you know, with uh, Twister and Armageddon and Deep Impact and Volcano and Dante's Peak, and it was just disaster movies were big. And this was a good one. And we've talked about how great the cast is. We didn't talk in detail about it, but there's a great cast in this film. And the dialogue is sharp. It's witty. Do you know Joss Wheaton worked on some of the rewrites of this film at one point? I did not know that. Yeah. Um, Michael Crichton and his wife were the ones who wrote it. And that then, I knew. Yep. And uh, by the way, since this is, uh, is it Jaws? You know, the executive producer was Steven Spielberg for this film. And uh, But yeah, it, during the – because I guess it's pretty normal you bring in people to do rewrites and stuff. But yeah, Whedon was one of them. And maybe that's you know explains why some of the dialogue is really funny. I, I have a whole bunch of favorite quotes I even cut and pasted and I'm ready to talk about as well. But you, you tell me what direction you want to go because I can talk about anything with this movie right now. Well, as far as your quotes, your favorite quotes, I mean we'll, we'll spend some time as we go on this talking about some of the individual characters. Okay. So as we get to characters, if you have favorite quotes, just throw them right out there. Sure thing. So uh, – now, I, obviously, you watched it that first time, and yep. your jaw dropped. Oh, yeah. How many times did you actually watch it in the theater completely? Or was it just kind of you're working, and you'd see a few minutes here and a few minutes there? I tended not to drop in and watch scenes. I tended to stay, you know, come and watch a whole movie, like, on my days off. So I probably saw it five, six times in the theater. Okay, so that's that's a pretty uh, pretty big sampling. I didn't have to pay uh, for it. Keep in mind, so you know. Yeah, well, that would. Yeah, that I mean, would. I remember even like dragging my willingness. My, I remember dragging my dad to the theater to see it, just because I and I kept talking about the sound. You've got to hear the. You got to see this on the big screen, Dad. The sound is amazing. And what was his take on it? I can't remember. Um, I, I think he enjoyed it. Uh, I, I really don't know. I mean, it's been 20 years. Uh, we're just going to yeah, say... Coming he right on 20 years now. We're going to say he loved it. How about that? Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah. We'll go with that. That'll back so, me up. Yeah, yeah, so like I said, my, my experience was I'm sitting on my couch. I put in the VHS tape, and it's I, I can definitely concede that it would lose a little some of its pizzazz. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and its scope. Absolutely. By doing it that way. That's what I've often said is the problem with people who do not like Star Trek, the motion picture. 
I said, you know, most of them, in my in my opinion, have experienced this years ago because people, you know, either you, if you didn't like it, you didn't rewatch it. Right. They experienced it years ago when the average home, the big TV set in the home might be 27 inches. Right. And that is definitely a movie that's made for the big screen. So I've suggested to people, if you didn't like it, maybe you should give a chance. You know, if, if you have a 50-inch TV set now, maybe it's time to give it a reviewing and see what you think. I hate to tell you, bro. Uh, I love the first 30, 40 minutes of that movie, the whole getting the band back together part of the movie. But basically, That is they... my favorite part of the movie, oh, is yeah. the getting the band back together. But I still with... appreciate the entire thing, which I'm sure you're going to tell me you don't. <laughs> well, when they leave Space Dock, I pretty much just turn it off. I just like I I've gotten what I need from that movie. I don't. There's nothing else in that movie that satisfies me really. I realize there's a lot of folks, especially on this whole entire network, that love that movie. I, again, the first 30 minutes, love it to death. Beyond that, I I the, I have a hard time with it because I've gotten all my shit porn at that point. You know, uh, I, I've gotten the character interaction. It's I, I got everything I need out of it. Fair enough. Fair enough. I I don't. Again. I, like I said, I, you know, opinions. I'm I'm fine with people having varying opinions, and as much as I joke around about other people are wrong, uh, I, it really, you know, it, your mileage may vary, is what mm-hmm. I said. Sure. But getting back to this, and I'm um, I'm going to just give. I, I, I I'm looking at Wikipedia. They have about a five paragraph description of the plot. You could probably read that one sentence paragraph at the top, though, on the Wikipedia page, because <laughs> I mean, again, the movie's not deep, folks. <laughs> Yeah, it's really not. And I'm just going to give a quick, you know, just a quick description. The movie opens up with the Helen Hunt character as a five-year-old. And there's a tornado and they're going down into the tornado storm cellar. But it rips her father away and presumably kills him. So then from there we cut to uh, Bill Paxton with his current girlfriend played by Jamie Gertz. And Helen Hunt, now an adult, is his soon-to-be ex-wife, and he's trying to get her to sign off on divorce papers. They're tornado chasers trying to get, uh, you know, information on tornadoes. They have this concoction that they've made, this Dorothy, which I assume is named after the Wizard of Oz. Um, well, she is on the, painted on the side of the device. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you hadn't oh, yeah, watched true. it on a 13-inch VHS, you might have been able to see <laughs> all that, but... Yeah, it's something that's going to release balls into the tornado and give them all sorts of readings that they're going to. The thought is that they'll have a better early warning system when these things are coming. And they have their arch enemy, their Belloc, if you will, uh, who's played by <laughs> Carrie Elways. And he's he doesn't have the same instincts that Bill Paxton does. So he kind of like just kind of follows along and does whatever they do. And he has his own machine that's kind of an imitation of Dorothy. It's even named. And, it's even named Dot, which is a nickname for people whose name is Dorothy. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And the movie just f- follows along as they chase tornado after tornado until they finally get Dorothy to work. And by that time, Jamie Gertz has realized this relationship isn't for her. And what you call Helen Hunt and uh, Bill Paxton realize we really do still love each other and we're together. Yep. End of story. Is that pretty much a full synopsis there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's laced with – I mean, all that is the loose hangings to hang an action movie around. I mean, it's tremendous amounts of things flying at the camera, stuff uh, – you know, explosions, houses rolling into frame, driving through houses and, you know, uh, spikes flying – you know, what I, I'm, signposts flying around in the wind. It's just lots and lots of that. And really, one of the major characters in the film is the tornado at the end. 
It is, uh, if you know anything about your, your, your tornado scale, uh, they're rated F1 through 5, F, F1 being the weakest, F5 being the strongest, and this becomes an F5 tornado, and that's what they're stalking at the end of the film. Again, it's practically a character in the movie, and uh, it becomes a very personal journey for Helen Hunt's character because of what you described with her father uh, passing away, and so she wants to find a way to, to help people, by, again, by studying these things. So, yeah. Now, as, as I watched it, Recently, and I had watched it in 1997 when it came out on VHS, had not seen it since. You suggested that we did this, so I, I went to the library, I got the uh, DVD, right. and I sat down and I watched it. And I watched it on a bigger screen than I had watched it 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And as I was watching it, I felt a definite connection to one thing that you said is that the disaster movies of the 70s, Poseidon mm-hmm. Adventure, Towering Inferno, Earthquake, uh, Airport, Oh yeah, uh, you know all the, all those type of movies. I felt that it was a you know a, a distant relative of those, but I also felt that it was turning a hurricane into a character, as you say, and it was almost Jaws like in the way the hurricane was portrayed. The tornado. The ter- tornado. Excuse me. You're right. It's the name of the movie Twister. It's yeah. not called Hurricane. No, it's not. It's, it's called, not called Tornado. It's not called Tornado. <laughs> but a twister is a tornado. It's only yeah, for, for, for those Midwesterners who call it that. I call it a storm. Okay. But, yeah, you're right. It's not a hurricane, and that, that is a misnomer by me. I live in Florida, so we know all about hurricanes. That's true. Yeah, you, you do get the hurricane season in August. But, uh, you know, I, I just back to the actual point, though. I, I did feel that they were making the tornado a character, as you say, and it was very similar in my own mind to Jaws. In that respect. Uh, But to one of my criticisms, and I don't have a lot of criticisms, to be fair, uh, they had to cram a lot of tornadoes into this movie. It's ludicrous. It's absolutely (laughs) ludicrous. Yeah, they they made it seem as if, you know, if you live in that area that, you know, there's one coming by every day. It's almost like the noon train. Every 15 minutes, it seems like. (laughs) And and also, um, there's a lot of absolute, you have to completely... Uh, suspend your disbelief in this film because you know at one point the tornado's coming along and ripping the fence posts individual post by post off just inches behind them you know the storm yeah, never they, and they're out racing it yeah. right exactly they're out racing the front edge of it and it's like come on really you know it, it, it's ludicrous but again it's an it's an adventure movie it's you know, Poseid- you know I'm glad you mentioned Poseidon Adventure that's one of my favorites I love that movie um, it, it's a disaster movie where the heroes have to get to the end Mm-hmm. Unlike Poseidon Adventure, a bunch of them don't die on the way, but uh, either way. Well, and spoilers for anybody who decides they want to watch this and has, haven't seen it yet. Uh, we do lose our quote-unquote villain in the yes. movie, and it's due to his own hubris and the fact that he's not willing to accept that they're giving him good advice when they tell him to get out of there. I just uh, wish as he's going up in the tornado, he'd said, as you wish. <laughs> Yeah, I, I found it funny to see him. I, I don't know what Carrie Elway's actual background is, but like him as the Dread Pirate Rob, Roberts with an English accent and then him in this with a Midwestern accent. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure which is the real him, which I, I guess speaks for him as far as quality of his acting. I don't know either. Uh, I don't buy his Midwestern accent, though. I mean, it does sound a little off a little bit, but... Um... But either way, it's interesting to see him play this douchey character as where, you know, I know he's been in a ton of movies, he's been in a ton of series, but for me, he's still Dread Pirates Roberts. And um, I have a hard time imagining him as anything else. So seeing him douchey was was a was huge, huge departure. 
Yeah, yeah, he was definitely not the guy, the guy that you picture to be acting that way. Right. Uh, but it, sometimes it's nice when they play out a character like that. He was probably, I guess, Philip Seymour Hoffman was probably the most stereotyped uh, as far as the way he acted. Like yeah. Anybody, anybody could just script him from if you've seen enough movies. Yeah. Uh, and I would say Carrie Always was number two on that list. Probably. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. At least of that had that got any development because like Carrie Ells had a had a whole team, uh, and and many of those actors have gone on to become known actors too. But they didn't do anything other than like give him data on what's going on with the tornadoes. Yeah. So yeah. And, I, and you knew they were all bad because they all drove black vehicles. Right. <laughs> They're corporate sponsored. How dare they have a corporate sponsor? <laughs> oh, and they talked about that like it was you know selling your soul. Right. Exactly. Well, pure scientists would never do that. Now, the other thing, and I'm going to give you – I think this is really the last significant negative that I have, is I never felt any real chemistry with Jamie Gertz and Bill Paxton. Oh, Jamie Gertz. Okay. I thought you were going to say Helen Hunt. No, I was not going to say that. (laughs) Okay. Interesting because I I, I was ready for that. I've listened to enough of your shows to know that chemistry is a big thing on your list. So I was ready for that one. I was not ready for the Jamie Gertz discussion. Um, You were were ready to argue that point? Oh, yeah. We we can still talk about it because I made notes. Uh, We will talk about it, but I don't know that we're (laughs) going to disagree. Interesting. I would agree. It it really felt like we need to have the girlfriend character in here because there's a story arc that involves her. But it almost seemed intentional that they didn't have any chemistry because they didn't want you to be rooting for her. Exactly. Yeah. They wanted they wanted him to get back with Helen Hunt by the time the movie was over, and they wanted you to feel okay. It's okay. We you know we, they didn't hurt this poor girl. She left and she was fine with it. Right. Yeah. You couldn't get invested in that relationship because then Bill Paxton becomes a bad person, uh, and so it, it really did. It really did feel like Jamie Gertz was him settling. You know, like he obviously him and Helen Hunt didn't work out, and he was looking for the stable life. You know, he'd become a weatherman at a local TV station. He had the stable girlfriend. You know, he's, he was looking for a some sort of stability in his life, and she represented boring stability, and their relationship was boring. Like I, I, I totally agree. There was. It's not that there wasn't chemistry. Well, I guess yeah, chemistry is the word. There was no chemistry, but it wasn't like he was still nice to her. Like he would kiss her hand and hold her hand and stuff like that. And it just reminded me of a guy that's just not that into a girl. Yeah, and and like as you described it, or as we described it, there was a lack of chemistry there. But I think they didn't want there to be chemistry, so it's kind of okay. So I'm saying it's a criticism, but it's it's almost like it's a criticism that exists because they didn't want to complicate the plot more than they had to. So in other words, they didn't give him chemistry on purpose. And therefore, it wasn't there. So what you're really saying is they did their job right. That's not a criticism. Well done. Thank you. If, if I'm going to treat it as a criticism, it's that maybe not wanting that that chemistry could be called a little bit of lazy writing because maybe they could have dealt with the chemistry and made it a more sophisticated story Oh, okay. if they had wanted to do that. But I think that wasn't their goal. Yeah. So, so the criticism might be what, you know, did they have the right goal? Okay. Because I think their goal was, we want to put an action movie up here. We need some plot things to happen, but we don't want to get bogged down in this relationship. Absolutely. Yeah, we need you to care about the characters. But We We need you to care about Bill Paxton. We need you to care about Helen Hunt. And we need you to like their support group. Yeah, their goofy team. Yep. And, and we and we need you to not be upset when Jamie Gertz rides off. <laughs> Job accomplished. So Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton. So you, oh, let's talk about Bill Paxton. Let's start oh, with sure. him now, because because he's really the impetus for us doing this. His recent passing. Yes. Tragic. So sad. Uh, 
was was what made you think, hey, let's do this movie, or at least that's what you said to me, unless you were out now lying. Uh, I'm known to do that, but no, it was it was the death of Bill Paxton had me sort of reflecting on some movies. Now I've always loved Twister, and I talk about Twister quite frequently. In fact, I showed it to my kids about a year ago, uh, so I. It's not like it's a movie I hadn't thought of recently, uh, but when he passed, I did look at sort of his filmography, and I'm like, I love that movie. In fact, did you see the bit, um, it was a news article, and, I'm, and I am paraphrasing at best here, folks, from a foggy memory, but when Bill Paxton passed, there were a group of storm chasers that went out and used, I guess it's a signaling device or something, like a marker to let people know where you are, like a ping or something. They basically drove around in certain areas of our country and spelled out the letters BP um, with their markers. So, like, people, you know, if you saw them, I guess, on a radar or something like that, it's not like they were all doing it at the same time. It took time to do all this. But it basically, their their efforts was spelled out electronically, the letter B and the letter P across the United States. Um, to That's very cool. Cause that is what, very cool. They felt like he really did a lot for Storm Chasers. Now, when I think of Bill Paxton and his career, Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, I don't think leading man. Not usually, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I think one of the better supporting actors in the industry. Game over, man. Game over. Yeah, I think of Aliens. I think of uh, True Lies. Weird Science. I think of Tombstone. Yeah, Weird Science. I love Chet. <laughs> yeah, I would say I would say possibly. Now, what, what's, what was the movie? And I don't I don't think I ever saw it. There's the movie where he plays. I think he wrote it. Mm. He's. He's like dealing with something that I think he plays the abusive father. Really? And it's like in flashbacks. Hmm. I, like I said, I've never seen the movie, and I'm gonna have to punch up his name to to come up with it. I don't know. I'm I'm doing his IMDb right now, but I I don't know that off the top of my head. Uh, I'm looking right now at his film list on uh, on Wikipedia. Frailty. Hmm. I haven't heard of that 2001. one. Two thousand and one. And I'm just I'm on the Wikipedia page. Frailty is a 2001 American psychological thriller film directed by and starring Bill Paxton and co-starring Matthew McConaughey. It marks Paxton's directorial debut. The plot focuses on the strange relationship between two young boys and their fanatically religious father who believes that he has been commanded by God to kill demons disguised as people. Oof. And he did not write it. Brent Hanley wrote it, but he directed it. That's where I... Uh, I see that here. Yeah. Wow. And, and I've never seen that one, but I remember reading the review of it, and it was one that I kind of always wanted to see, and I've just never got around to it. Okay. And I may have to revisit that just based on this conversation alone. I mean, the guy's been in so many films, and, like, you forget the movies. He's been in, like, he's been in some of the biggest selling movies of all time. He's in Titanic. Most people, oh, forget, yeah. most people forget well, that's, that. that's based on his friendship with James Cameron. Oh, what? oh, interesting. Okay. But U571, you know, he's been in some of the Spy Kids movies. I mean, just a lot of stuff that you like, oh, I've certainly heard of all these things. And he, you know, Big Love, he, he was, uh, wasn't he one of the main characters in Big Love? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was, yeah. He was I, I believe he was the main. I think he was the lead, yeah. Main male lead, yeah. Was he in uh, Avatar? Uh, that certainly sounds right. Because he's, he's basically in everything James Cameron does. That's why I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't see his name on here. Interesting. Maybe not. He's probably just uncredited. <laughs> Quite possibly. Apollo 13. Oh, my gosh. I forgot oh, that. Oh, yeah. Another excellent movie that wow. he's Anyway, a fantastic career, that guy. Yeah. Uh, but absolutely. like I said, I generally think of him more as the supporting actor than the star. And I think this was the attempt to break him out to be a... Uh, an action star in his own right. 
And while the movie was successful, that doesn't seem to have come to pass. Yeah. I, I don't know that he had enough of the Hollywood look, you know? I mean, it, certainly he carries this movie quite well, but I, he's not a, you know, he's not a handsome devil like Tom Cruise or, you know, those other folks that are doing action movies. And I don't you know, maybe he's, maybe he's like a Bruce Willis. Maybe he just needed the right vehicle to make it happen for him. Like, I, I, I would argue if it hadn't been for Die Hard, Bruce Willis never would have been an action star. He would have been relegated to comedies like Moonlighting, and that would have been it. Um, well, if you, if you remember when he first started in the movies, he was in that uh, movie Blind Date yeah. with Kim Basinger, oh, yeah. and that seemed to be where he was going. Yep. So I think I think you're accurate on that. I think Die Hard just proved to be such an overwhelming success that it was like, well, how can you not make action movies with him? Right, and if, and if Bill Paxton had had a Die Hard uh, or if he had been a lead in, in Aliens rather than the whiny, funny guy, you know, uh, or something like that, that might have been enough to push him over the edge to, to into being that action star. Because I, I thought he did a great job in this film. Yeah, I thought, I thought he, he, well, he pretty much carries the movie. I think Helen Hunt is good in the movie, but even though she is the, the core character since the movie opens up with her mm-hmm. situation, I still think the, re- the movie is really following him. He's... Not only your star, but he's also kind of your point of view character. Yeah, that's fair. He's giving you everything in this uh, in this movie, and he really is carrying it. Not totally on his back, but he's he's the he's kind of the store that the straw that stirs the drink in this movie. Well, I think when you said he's the POV, he's the point of view. I think that's the way to look at it. Yeah, because you really can't get into Joe's head, which is uh, Helen Hunt's character. You can't really get into Joe's head because her whole life is obsession is her obsession of chasing the storm because of what happened with her dad. And it's almost like Batman. You know, when you watch a Batman movie, as much as you like Batman, you can't really understand his obsession. You can't understand that drive that pushes him. It just doesn't... There's no way to really comprehend how nutso Bruce Wayne is. And in some ways, Joe's like that. Yeah. Yeah, she's totally obsessed. And then that becomes part of... That's pretty much her story arc. Yep. Because the movie opens with showing you why that obsession exists, and the movie ends with him saying, "You got to let it go. You got to move on." Yep. And her accepting that, at least, at least in theory, she's accepting it. Yeah. So the, the, we started down this path because of their chemistry. I'd like to hear your thoughts on their chemistry. Well, this see, I, I've always found Helen Hunt to be a very likable and charismatic actress. Mm-hmm. I remember. I can't remember the name of the TV show. Which I guess I get, no 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 no. Helen Hunt is probably a year older than me, or maybe a year younger than me. But she's in the same age group that I'm in. Okay. And she was as she played one of the teenage children. Oh. On a show with Richard Crenna as the father. Hmm. And I remember that was the first thing I saw her in, and I was kind of attracted to her back then. Okay. And then I always followed kind of her career, and, and was always interested in her. And then when Mad About You came on, I thought she and Paul Reiser had tremendous chemistry. Oh, yeah. And that was that was a really enjoyable show to watch. And that was around the time when I was first getting married and everything. So the, the show really resonated with me a lot. Sure. So I've always found her to be an actress that I enjoyed. And Bill Paxton has that everyman quality about him. And I think the two of them match up really well. And I think it speaks volumes for the chemistry that they shared in this movie Based on the fact that there really wasn't a lot of script writing to get you to understand their relationship. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, we're going to just throw it out there for you, and either you see it or you don't. At least that's the way I interpreted it. And I think that they do pull it off. I think some of it you kind of ha- had to fill in the blanks yourself. Yeah. Like, um, 
you're right. They didn't show their relationship. What and there's no and for me the chemistry is not a huge sparking romantic passionate relationship. What I see when I see these two characters together is basically an old married couple. Is kind of what they are. They act like two people that have a very mature relationship. It's not this crazy, you know, steamy heat coming off of them, but they're just they're best friends. They get each mm-hmm. other. They're intuitive to each other. They trust each other completely and they always want to be there for the other one because they love each other. But you're not going to see the big, you know, your heart leap up in your throat and be like, "Oh, it's so beautiful." It's not that's not their kind of relationship. So it's a different kind of chemistry. It's not, you know, again, the steamy kind. It's like it's a real almost like a mature relationship is how I see their chemistry. Yeah, I would I would agree with all of that. There isn't there but again, this isn't a movie where they're trying to create a big romance. That's not what this is about. This is about the chemistry that they share this obsession for different reasons. Yeah. You know, she does it because of what happened in her life and he does it because he has this innate skill and understanding of this phenomena that other people don't have. You know, they talk about his instincts yep. compared to the Carrie Elway's character, who I don't remember his name, uh, but that's, how he has matter. no instincts where, where Bill Paxton is, is all instincts. Right. He can understand what the storm's thinking is what they say. <laughs> Which is, you know, kind of dopey, but yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's things in nature that you just you have an instinct about. I totally, don't, don't be knocking it. Don't be knocking it. <laughs> I mean, there's things in this where, like, the storm is actually following the road. Right. I, again, that's a it's almost, you know, belief. we're getting into Jaws 4 of the shark following uh, Lorraine Gary down to Bermuda here. Careful now. Careful now. <laughs> if we go anywhere near a Jaws 4 rating on this movie, you and I will come to blows, sir. <laughs> we're going to end up the show. You're going you're gonna to sign off. You're going to get in your car. You're going to drive up to New York, walk up to my door, ring the bell. I'm going to answer the door. You're going to punch me in the face. You're going to get back in the car and drive down to Florida again. That's about right. That's about right. I'm going to get those you know, industrial diapers. I'm going to do it all astronaut style, and, and that's what's going to happen. Um, you talk about Joe and uh, Bill together. There's a great part where they're they're hiding in a barn. This is, uh, this is like a nice little chemistry moment where you just get a feel for these two, where they're hiding in the barn, and they open the door and it's just full of dangling metal instruments you know like uh, things that you would use to basically slaughter cows with and stuff like that but all they can think is this wind is whipping it around and they're running into a barn to hide it's full of sharp instruments and she's like my god who are these people and he's like i don't think so and it just they're in sync it's funny the, the dialogue's funny the bit is funny and they run and go find another place to hide and it's just it's it's a nice it's, it's a chance for me to use my list of quotes uh it's also just a nice bit of chemistry in there now, I, I think part of their chemistry isn't limited to them. Part of their chemistry is the support group. You know, you talked yes. about, uh, you know, uh, boy, the names just escape me sometimes. The actors uh, or the characters? Well, the, the characters, I don't remember any of the names. Okay. I'm talking about the actors. There was, there was no real reason to remember any of the, any, any of the characters' names. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. But, um, You're going to have problems. you, you got to remember Rabbit and you got to remember Dusty. You can't forget their names. But, yes, there's uh, – you got Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Dusty. You've got uh, Alan Ruck, who's Cameron yeah. Ferris Bueller, playing Rabbit. You've got Sean Whalen playing Alan Sanders. Uh, I don't know who that is. Uh, you've got Preacher. You've got Belzer, and you've got a bunch of other people too. But, yeah. but th- there's there's the scenes there when they go to uh, Joe's aunt's house. Oh, Aunt Meg. And they're all sitting around laughing and joking around and everything, and that adds to the chemistry because you do get the feeling that this is a group that. They're not just co-workers. They're, they're a family. Yes. 
And then, you know, Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt are the mom and dad. That's really all it comes down to. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of goes with your analogy of this being an old married couple. Yep. Yeah, that's true. It is sort of like a family kind of thing. I hadn't thought about that. You know, like, uh, what are those movies? I can't remember. The Cheaper by the Dozen where they've got a, hu- a huge family. But, uh, yeah, like even in the opening scenes where Bill first shows up and he's coming to get the divorce paper signed, every, uh, the same comment everyone says is, hey, glad to have you back, boss. And he keeps saying, you know, I'm not back. But it is it is a family sort of setting. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned them eating dinner because one of my favorite lines from the movie, uh, and it's not a funny line, it's a, sort of a powerful one, is in that in that scene where they're eating dinner because they're, they're explaining to Jamie Gertz what, about tornadoes and they explain what an F5 is. Or they talk about the different uh, scale. And they get to F5. She's like, what about F5? And uh, they all get real quiet and they're like, you know, because the only person who's ever seen an F5 is, is Helen Hunt and she's upstairs getting a shower. And she's like, what's, what's an F5 like? And Preacher says the finger of God, which just sends chills up my spine whenever he says it, because, I mean, just the power of an F5 tornado and the destructive ability is just, whoa. So I love I loved that line. Then there's, there's some points where they'll use, like, the lingo, and it almost seems like, you know, you, you accept it because it's obvious what they're saying, but it almost seems a little silly, too, at the same time. But in an acceptable way, you don't have to drive up here and hit me. Uh, <laughs> but like when when the uh, the tornado splits into two and says, "Oh, we got sisters," right? You know, like I don't know. I just kind of enjoyed that. I don't know if that's very realistic. Sure. The way it happens, but you just at that point you run with it. Um, it's, I a, think it's, a, of, it's it's a little bit of Riker, yeah. How he would uh, he, he would dumb everything down for the audience in every every episode, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm thinking along the lines though of in Jaws. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, oh, oh, okay. At the at okay. the end of the at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. when uh, Roy Scheider shoots the gun and explodes the oxygen tank, right, to kill the shark. They talked about that. I think it was Steven Spielberg and Peter Benchley, but it could have been other people involved in this conversation. That it's not really a very realistic way to end the movie. And Steven Spielberg's take on it was, at this point, I have them for two hours in my hand. They're going to accept anything now. Mm. I can end it this way and we're fine. Okay. And and I think he was right. I think he's built up so much goodwill through this movie in Jaws that by the time he he shoots and actually hits that tank and explodes it and kills the shark, you're, you're just so happy that he got that he did what he did yep. that you don't even bother thinking of the logistics of it anymore. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And I think we do have some of that element to this movie. Like, not to the extent of Jaws, I'm sorry. You might start warming up the car again. That's okay. Uh, but there's, you know, we talked about, like, the way they make it look like there's a hurricane every 15 minutes. Or tornado. Me, tornado. Tornado every 15 it's minutes. It's not that difficult of a concept. It is when you're stupid. <laughs> So if there's, you know, the, the, the concept that there's a tornado every 15 minutes and the way that the tornado travels and the way they can plot it and they, the way it takes Carrie always out. Right. You know, there's some elements in there that are, that are kind of cheesy and silly. Oh, yeah. But at that point, you've gone through so much of this movie that it's like, you know what, I'm just running with it now. Yeah. I mean, the, especially the end, the climax where they have, you know, this tornado is able to shred a barn. It is able to rip up houses, all this stuff. But hang on to that pipe and you're fine. Right. They, they take a leather belt and hold on to a pipe and they survive. And and to make it worse, the minute the tornado passes over them, it just dissipates. It's done. As if passing over them was the, was the killer of the tornado, you know. And you're right. After two hours of being invested in the film, you just go with it. You're like, woof, heck of a ride. Hell yeah. 
and because yeah. it just you just you followed it along. Suspension of disbelief. And you know what? Spielberg, again, Spielberg with Jaws, Spielberg here, maybe, you know, he, he had a And Crichton wrote it. I mean, come on, Spielberg and Crichton, the guys who did Jurassic Park, they know what they're doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on board with you with that. Now, this was a pretty big hit. Well, hold on, before we go there, we've got more to talk about with the team. Okay, let's go with the team. Who, so, who else uh, we got? Alan Ruck. I have met Alan Ruck personally, and he was one of the, again, Cameron from Ferris Bueller to help you guys if you don't know the name. Well, he was one of the nicest guys in the world. I met him at Dragon Con one year, and nobody was at his table, which everyone was fools for not going there. And I went over, and we just had, we probably had a five-minute conversation. I don't know. He asked me my name and everything. And then um, we took a picture together. Such a nice guy. Like, wanted to know about me, you know? And he was then, one of the most ineffective Starship captains I've ever seen. Well, that's because he... That's a whole different discussion. All right. Okay. <laughs> if you haven't done Generations, maybe I'll come back for that. Anyway, I totally distract. All right, let's uh, where we where, where we were going about? Okay, about the we're talking about Alan Ruck. Okay, so you know he, he, he we we after the chat it was really wonderful, great guy. The next day, I'm waiting to cross the street between hotels because Dragon Con actually takes up many many hotels, and Alan Ruck's waiting there across the light with me, and I don't say anything. To him. I don't want to bother him. He's kind of you know quote unquote off duty at that point, and he looks at me and he goes, "We met yesterday, didn't we?" And I'm like, yes, we did, sir. And he's like, what's your name again? I said, Shag. He's like, oh, good to see you again, Shag. And that was it. But the fact that he remembered me, took the time to mention it, he's not like, you know, on the phone with his agent and didn't want to talk to the nerds that are surrounding him. It's just, what a guy. What a great guy. So Yeah, that, that is a pretty cool story, I have to say. In, invariably, in every movie he's in, a nerdy but likable guy. Yeah, that's every, fair. Every movie. Absolutely fair. Uh, and here he plays Rabbit. And he is the navigator. He's in charge of the maps. I mean, his, the first line you hear him say in the movie is like, you know, all I'm saying is roll the maps. And the other guy's like, I did roll it. He goes, don't fold the maps. There's a line right through Kansas. Wichita's a mess. Just roll the maps. And so he's a little inattentive, a little nerdy, like you said. And he's the one who navigates him through the movie. And he's just got weird lines that aren't like gut-busting gut funny. But I just find him hilarious. Like, they're, they're on a road. And they're trying to figure out where they are. And at one point... He's like, oh, he gets, they're like, where are we? I don't know where we are because they just turned off, you know, they just follow the tornado. They didn't even pay attention to signposts. And he's like, oh, find this road. I don't know. It's, it's like Bob's road, you know, and I use that line all the time when I'm traveling with my family and it not, we don't get lost, but we end up on some back road and my wife will be like, where are we? I'm like, I don't know. It's like Bob's road. I use it all the time. And then uh, another point, when when someone's asking directions, and I, I tell them what to do, and they're not they're like, are you sure? I always use the line here. He goes, trust me, rabbit is good, rabbit is wise. That's another line he uses when he's telling them right. that he knows what he's doing. I just, I don't know why. I love that line. And when I have so, when I have someone in my car and I tell them they're navigating, I call them rabbit. It's it's just a small, iconic, it's, it's, it's an iconic role that is such a tiny little thing you might not think about, but it just had an impact on me. Yeah, no, he... he... He embodies that character very well with very little screen time, really. Yeah. But he's, you know, again, they gave him a little bit of a stereotype. They gave him just enough lines. Like you said, probably they had Joss Whedon even play with the, the lines a little bit so that he's giving you, if not the most memorable lines, certainly enjoyable lines. Yeah, I mean, the, the best possible lines that sort of stereotypical character could deliver. This is the way to say it, you know? Um, we talked about Dusty. Going from there to another stereotypical, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Who, at the time this movie came out, was not in my radar. Oh, he's no, he was nobody. I had no idea who he was at this time. Uh, I didn't learn of him, I guess. I probably did, wasn't familiar with him until he came out in Capote. 
I think most people kind of became aware of him in Boogie Nights, but but he did not like when I became aware of who he was, I wouldn't have thought of Dusty. Certainly not. Absolutely not. I love his gregarious nature. You know, he's just like extreme. You know, he's I'm even squatting my knees right now. Extreme and pointing. <laughs> and you know, later on when they when they want to go eat, they're trying to convince Joe to go to Aunt Meg's, and they're like, we need. Food and he's doing those fingers in the air like food. Ah, Dusty's great. Dusty's hilarious. Now he's probably the most stereotyped character in the movie. Sure, yeah, he's completely one-dimensional. But who cares? But it he's works. totally enjoyable. Yep. I mean, you could all you can always picture you know exactly what it is. He's the guy who mouths off. Yep. Eventually, the bully kind of gets him in a corner, and then the hero of the movie turns around and punches the bully in the face to protect him. Yeah, absolutely. Sooner or later, that would have happened. <laughs> Well, you know, this is the kind of thing that would have worked well as a series, honestly. I mean, it would have got real ridiculous after a while chasing storms. But, you know, they purposely went out of their way to create a series of very different characters. You had Dusty, the gregarious guy. You had the uptight map guy. Then you have Preacher, you know, who's – they never explain Preacher. Other than you you assume he's religious, a lot of the comments he makes like prodigal son returns and the finger of God. He makes little, you know, religious references. Other than that, we have no idea what this guy's job even is. Uh, Then there's Belzer. Now, we got to mention Belzer. Belzer's just kind of like a generic regular guy. And he's but he's the one who I think has the girlfriend, um, sort of the nerdy girl with the glasses and the short haircut and the Gilligan hat. But Belzer has quite possibly one of the most important lines in the movie. Do you know what that line is? I don't. Uh, Paul. You're going to have to help me. I've only seen this movie once in the last 20 years. Okay. You should have caught this line when he said, well, you know, it, it may have been hard to hear. Hmm. Okay. There is a moment when they see the storm and Belzer yells out, that's no moon, that's a space station. I did miss that. Yeah. Because I, I, I should have caught that. Yeah, you definitely should have caught that. He goes, that's no moon, that's a space station. Because of how big the storm is. So that's got to be like a Wheaton line, you would think. I don't know. All right, I think I finally burned through all my quotes. (laughs) It would certainly make sense for Wheaton to have thrown that one in there. Yeah. So we started to go about how big of a hit the movie was. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know the numbers on this? At all? I did. Well, I, I know how the show works. So yes, I, I did. I, I looked on. Oh, Bo- you cheated. Well, was I, am I supposed to not? I mean, I know. No, no. Yeah, well, if you don't, then I usually try and see if you how you guess. Oh yeah. But I mean, no, I didn't look at. I didn't look at all. Could, could the domestic gross been? I don't know. Off the top of my head, two hundred and forty-one million seven hundred twenty-one thousand five hundred twenty-four dollars. Am I close? I would say that's very close. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Maybe, you know, there might have been another 50 cents or something in there that you missed. Right, right. But that's off a $92 million budget. That's pretty good. That's just domestic. International is much bigger. But we've talked about this recently, how the current day wisdom is two and a half times your budget makes you a hit. Right. I don't believe that was the formula 20 years ago. Really? I believe the formula was two times your budget 20 Mm. years ago. Okay. I think the advertising dollars have increased dramatically, okay. and possibly the movie theater take is not the same percentage-wise as it once was. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, they're so insistent on wanting the huge opening weekends now, because they, the actual film companies make more money early on in the release and less as it goes on. I was going to say, have you ever talked about that, how that works? Because, I mean, I actually have firsthand knowledge on some of this working in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. So, 
Okay, yeah, you probably have more than me because I'm I'm working out of things I've heard over year, over the years, but I don't really have a lot of firsthand knowledge. Well, it's, it's fascinating, and it, it, it varies. I'm going to throw some numbers around, and these are all bogus numbers, guys. I mean, you can't use you can't take this and, and quote it because it's just these are purely for. Discussion for, purposes, uh, yeah. yeah. For discussion purposes or for examples. The, the bigger the movie, the more the, 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 the distribution company is going to take off the release. So let's just say Twister comes out, and they're expecting it to be a big hit because it did. It, it, it was, had a lot of early buzz. The trailer, which we got to talk about the trailer in a minute, uh, was very popular. People knew this movie was coming and obviously made a lot of money. So opening weekend, a movie theater such like AMC where I worked, we might only – you know we sell the tickets for $10, whatever. Or it wasn't that much back then, but um, – we might only keep 5% of the box office grosses that first weekend. And 95% of the gross would go to the distribution company, the people that made the movie. And so we would only keep 5 per, 5, 5% of the ticket price, which is why when you go into the concession stand, you're looking at an $8 Snickers. I mean, that's that's why the concession stand is so ridiculously priced and why they want you to buy concessions because that's where they're making the real money. They're not making much money off the movie. And then after you get past the first weekend, that percentage, again, we're just pretending it's 95%, goes down to, say, 90% or 85% after the first weekend. And progressively, the longer a movie theater can keep a movie on the screen, the lower the percentage becomes that the, that the distribution company takes. It could get down to the point where the distribution company is only taking 50%. And on those weird occasions where a movie theater can hold on to a movie long enough but still is selling a fair enough amount of tickets, they can actually make more money with... 20, 30, 40, 50 people in the auditorium than they would have with a sold-out theater because the percentages work in their favor at that point. Um, Which is exactly the basis for there being dollar theaters out there showing movies that are in release for, you know, whatever, three, four months already. Exactly. It's also the reason for, in the 90s, that huge, huge rush to expand your theater size. Because growing up, you know, most of our towns had two screens, four screens, maybe eight screens by the 80s. In the 90s, suddenly you go to 24-screen auditoriums, 30-screen auditoriums. It wasn't because they wanted to show Selena on seven screens, folks. It's because they wanted to be able to show a movie for longer. They wanted to be able to show a movie for six weeks because by the sixth week, they were making some pretty decent money on it. it because otherwise, with only two screens, you've got to rotate stuff off, and you're paying the film company most of your revenue. So the big that was the reason why so many screens were uh, the big expansion. And it all all makes total sense. And I don't know where the numbers have changed and to what extent they've changed, but they do seem to be much, much more focused in the last five years or so about getting that that huge weekend to open the movie. Right, right. So my my thought process is that percentage is probably whatever it was. And again, you you know, you you gave hypothetical numbers. Right. uh, Whatever it was, I think, has skewed – on the opening weekend, more to the distribution company now. Quite possibly. And probably goes more quickly to the theater. Mm. So what seems to be happening is there, there's a bigger push by the distribution company to get that initial huge weekend in. Yep. That's why they're, you know, that's why the weekend starts on Thursday now and ends on Sunday. Sure, sure. You know, we, we get four-day weekends now, and, you know, the, which makes no sense whatsoever, but that's besides the point. But that's also, I think, why you do see movies leaving the theater more quickly now again, even with these multi-multiplexes. Uh, a movie like, uh, what's it called, Kong of Skull Island, you're already having a tough time finding a theater to, to see that in, and uh, for purposes of anybody listening, we're towards the end of April now, so that would that movie would be 
maybe two months old. Yeah, maybe even less. I'm not sure. Yeah, so – but now you'd have a tough time finding it in the theater because I think what happens is, first of all, by emphasizing that opening weekend, you're going to decrease the number of people who are coming two months down the line. And also by having that money skew back to the theater quick, more quickly, it lets them turn their profit and get an, turn it over to another movie more quickly. Yeah, and I think there's other factors that affected things. You know, the the DVD market, the streaming market, the fact that things come to home video so quickly now that the lifespan's short. I mean, if you don't see it in the theater, people don't care that much anymore. It's like, ah, oh, well, yeah, I didn't catch it. That's okay. I'll watch it on Netflix, you know, next week on my 50-inch TV with surround sound woofers and all that stuff, and not have to worry about the crying baby in the back. You know, the home, and, and that's why they need to make the initial release an event. Yep, exactly, exactly. Get so those think, bodies into the theater. Yep, absolutely. So I, I did want to mention the trailer for this movie. Uh, by the way, the the international, we didn't we didn't say it. It's almost half a half a billion dollars by the end. I mean. Mm-hmm. Un- unbel- that's- I think it was like 490-something million. 494 million. Wow. That's great. Good for you, Bill Paxton. How they never tried to make a sequel out of this is amazing. I mean, not that they necessarily needed those two stars to make the movie. It could have been anybody starring in a Twister movie. You know, But um, I'm just shocked that and maybe there is a story where they tried and it didn't take off. But I'm just shocked with that kind of money that it didn't you know, go far down the production process. You know, You'd almost expect a Predator 2-type sequel out of this. Yeah. Full recasting, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, full recasting, kind of the same thought process for the movie, uh, but you know we're going to tr- throw a slight twist in it and hope we get an audience. Right, right. And, twist, and I throw that Twister I throw in New York. Predator, <laughs> yeah, I throw Predator Two out there as as an example of that, which I actually think is a somewhat underrated sequel. Well, as you say, it's one of those where you do a whole new cast, and it, it you know it's not Grease Two where it bombed miserably with a whole new cast. It's it's a whole new cast where it kind of worked, you know, it kind of worked. Um, so the trailer, Twister is infamous for its initial trailer because, uh, and I remember when we would run the trailer in the theater, people would really got into it because it ends on a big gasp moment. Now nowadays every trailer ends on a gasp it seems like but maybe it wasn't as common back then or maybe this one was just effective but either way you know a lot of cool imagery in the trailer and the last scene of the trailer is a giant tire comes off of a tractor bounces towards the screen and smashes into the camera and that's how the trailer ends is that tire smashing into you basically is what it feels like and uh, it was very effective it was really powerful everyone was like whoa that scene's not in the movie, and therefore, and and at that point, uh, Twister became sort of like the the flag waving example of misleading trailers, trailers mm-hmm. that would put stuff in there to get audiences interested, and not put it in the movie. Yeah, which is you could do a whole show on that alone. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I I do have some problem with them doing that uh-huh. sometimes when they make you know it's one thing to me the uh, the teaser trailer. For uh, Terminator is one I think of as one you saw it, you knew it wasn't going to be in the movie, and it was okay because it was just to get you kind of excited about it. And I don't know if you remember that the teaser. original Terminator, the term for Terminator Two. Oh, Terminator Two. Oh, okay. The teaser, the teaser trailer basically showed the assembly line creating the, the Terminators. Okay. And they were all Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hmm. Man, I don't remember that one. I'm sure. And then I saw it just it. ended. You, you just heard him say, "I'll be back," and that was it. Okay. Interesting. But you, you knew that wasn't in the movie. I mean, right. you just knew it. it, it intuitively, you knew it. That's and like that the, was okay. That's like the Godzilla trailer they did for the Matthew Broderick 97 one, 
where it's they're they're in an art museum and uh, not art museum, they're in a, a natural history museum. And there's a skeleton of a, a T Rex, and crashing through the skylight, Godzilla's foot squashes the T Rex skeleton and then just keeps going. You know that's not in the movie, but it's there to get everyone excited. But I do have some issue when they present it and they make you think it's part of the movie, or even worse, they make you think it's an integral part of the movie, mm-hmm. and then it's not there at all. Yeah. This this was definitely misleading and unfair to the audiences, because everyone remembered that tire, and everyone came out talking about the tire wasn't in the movie. <laughs> they, they got a cow instead. Right. Another cow? No, I think that's the same cow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you think of the soundtrack in this? You know, I've never picked it up, uh, but I, I was looking at it today, and I'm like, how did I not pick this up? You know, there's the orche- there's two soundtracks. There's, the, there's yes. the orchestral, and then the one with all the songs. And watching the movie, there's some great music in this movie. There really is. So I, I am kicking myself and thinking now that I might need to, you know, might need to do a late night iTunes shopping tonight and pick up the soundtrack. <laughs> well, the the orchestral soundtrack, I think, is. And I didn't give it such a close listen because I was watching the movie at the same time. But, you know, I'm trying to pay attention to everything. And I thought it was fairly effective. Yeah. It wasn't – I don't think it was something where you'd necessarily want to get that orchestral orchestral theme and listen to it on its own. Yeah, you're not humming any bars from you know, the Wichita run or something like that, you know, whatever the tracks might but be called. You also had the pop music that was in there, which yeah. is, I guess, yes. what you're talking about getting yep. on iTunes. And that was that was all pretty well placed in the movie, I thought, and effective. Yep. And then I believe you also had a third component to it, and that would be the Eddie Van, Van Halen guitar music that's playing periodically throughout the movie. Oh, uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Which I thought was also effective, and it was very much in contrast to the orchestral. Mm-hmm. They did some nice melding of stuff. Like there's one scene where, where they're trying to show you how different everyone is. You know, the, you see Preacher listening to his music. You see, uh, you know, Dusty listening to his music. Everyone's got their own music going. And there's a moment where they sort of blend the tracks together to sort of, sort of show the unity of the team, and it works. Like all the beats just work really well. Mm, which is not easy to do. No. Clearly, this guy had an ear for music. I mean, I don't know if he's a. He, I don't know if I'd call it a James Gunn level soundtrack. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy, but uh, it's definitely a fun soundtrack full of very diverse pop type songs. It's fun. So I think we should also touch on before we, you know, and we're running a little long, but I'm okay with that because I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm uh, too excited. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we should touch on Jan Debant. Yes, we should. Who directed this movie? Yes, and we should. He had an interesting career before this movie ever started, before this movie, rather, uh, as a uh, cinematographer. Yes. And he was apparently a top man. uh, And I'm just going to read off some of his filmography as a cinematographer. He started in 1971 in a movie I'm totally unfamiliar with called Business is Business. Okay. Uh, The first movie he's got on his list that I've heard of is Private Lessons in 1981. (laughs) Uh, which is not known for its cinematography particularly. It's known for something. But then we, then we start getting a little bit slicker in 1983 when he uh, was the cinematographer for, among others, Cujo and All the Right Moves. Mm-hmm. Eventually went on in 1988 to be the cinematographer for Die Hard, a very slick movie. Uh, Black Rain in 1989, which is definitely a movie that was looking for that slick look with uh, Michael Douglas. He also was the cinematographer for Hunt for Red October, Flatliners, Lethal Weapon 3, Basic Instinct, and then stepped up as a director and had two, in my opinion, 
you know, like right out of the shoot, two big ones. Yes. His first movie in 1994 was Speed as that, a director. That movie was, for, for, you know, for people that are younger than, you know, us, they probably don't realize Speed is kind of a punchline now, you know. Uh, stop, you know, the, whatever the line about stop the bus and the bus explodes or whatever. But, um, but that movie was huge. Everybody oh, yeah. went to see that movie. Absolutely. I, I, we, I'm going to have to cover that movie at some point on the show because I think it's, it's worth, worth visiting. Uh, and then he followed it up with Twister, which is where we are today. Yep. He made the unfortunate mistake of following uh, Twister with Speed 2 Cruise Control. Oof. But we, we won't discuss that one. I'm pretty confident that that one will never be on this show. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, he like I said, he came out of the shoot very hard-hitting, put it that way. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, you, you really expected more from him based on those first two. Right, right. Well, did, did you read about the crazy stories about how he went nuts during the filming of this movie? Was all no, the, I, I did not. It was on the Wikipedia page. So, you know, you, you know, you got to take it for whatever it is. You know, but supposedly the guy went sort of nuts filming towards the end of the movie. There were a lot of problems on set. Like at one point, Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt were both temporarily blinded by some lamps that just went nuts. Um, they like got back to their rooms. They felt like their eyeballs had been sunburned. They couldn't see. They had to take a couple of days with like wearing special glasses and stuff like that. Um, at one point, the scene where they're under the bridge and the bridge is rattling around, like the the that gut ditch was so gross, they had to like get um, hepatitis shots afterwards. And Helen Hunt kept banging her head on on that bridge uh, underneath there. So, but but where the guy really went crazy was he said he by the last five weeks he was out of control. He kept insisting on multiple cameras being used. They used um, nor- a normal film apparently uses three hundred thousand feet of film. He used one point three million feet of film. Um, he became incredibly hard to work with. Like, I think they're, I'm forgetting some of it now, but like the head of photography walked off the set after like during the last few weeks of the movie, he just couldn't take working with this guy anymore. He was taking lots of risks, endangering people. Um, apparently he got pretty nuts towards the end and, um, scary stuff. Well, that's, that seems to be the case. It seems like some, some of these guys start directing a movie and they turn into, uh, Kurtz from heart of darkness. Okay. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that seems like, you know, that, the funny thing is that seems to be the the backstory to Apocalypse Now with Francis Ford Coppola, that he actually kind of turned into uh, the Marlon Brando character. Right. But but you hear more and more stories about these guys, these directors who just become so single minded in putting these movies together that they start, you know, let's say cutting corners on safety and things of that nature. Right. Uh, and that's what it sounds like, you know, from what you're saying and what I'm reading about DeBont, that sounds like what he did here. Yeah. Well, it was his second big film. He's coming off of speed. You know, he, he's expecting another ginormous hit because his last one would be a big hit. Why wouldn't this one be? And then he's running out of time, you know, and, and, and the set was obviously plagued with problems. I mean, there's a bunch of other stuff I didn't read where people are getting hit in the head by certain things are getting concussions. There were a lot of, there were a lot of, problems on the set so he was probably getting manic about it and you know maybe he's not a good people person maybe he's not a good leader maybe people wouldn't follow him and so he started just turning nutso looking at the uh, wikipedia page and what you were talking about uh hats off to uh, paul reiser yeah it says it says uh they were helen hunt was scheduled to return to start filming mad about you and he agreed to delay two and a half weeks to allow for extra for extra shooting on twister so he's good good for him Good for him. You know, I, I had a story I was going to share earlier, and I know we're going way long, but frankly, I don't care. It's not my show. I don't have to do the editing. Um, uh, I got. I, I should 
I should and I shouldn't share this story. So when we get done, you can decide if you want to keep it in or not. But Helen Hunt, uh, you talked about how, how you just thought she was a great every woman and everything. I had the biggest crush on her. I thought she was hot. I thought she was funny. I thought she was smart, sexy, the whole package. And I got so obsessed with her when she was on Mad About You. I wouldn't stop talking about her. And a buddy of mine, who I'd been friends with through many, 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 many years, finally got tired of it. <laughs> he called me on it one day. He's like, because I, I was talking about her. He's like, would you shut up? I get it. You've got the hots for her. Don't you understand why? I'm like, what? He's like, eh. It's clear as day. Why don't you get it? I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like, she looks exactly like your high school girlfriend. <laughs> like, what? And the minute he said it, it clicked. I, I had a girlfriend I was with for two years through high school. She was a little, you know, my first love, all this stuff. Looks exactly like Helen Hunt. And, well, like I can say it's good for you. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, all this time, I, I was crazy about her, and I didn't realize it was probably more of a bit of a transference from my first girlfriend. But. I'm okay with that because I still think Helen Hunt's beautiful. Yeah, oh, she she is a beautiful woman. There's no question. And she's you know she's by Hollywood standards she's getting up there in age, but she's still uh, when you see her now she still looks great. Oh yeah, and she's doing a lot of really important pieces. I mean, she's really focused on. Oh, I forget. Oh, because it's terrible because I just read it the other day. Uh, she's very socially conscious in her, in the choice of her projects now, and she's very involved. You guys should look her up. She's she's doing some great stuff out there, and uh, I I just think the world of her. Yeah, I'm with you on it. All right. So I think, you know, having gone long, and as much as I could let this go all night, I'm going to ask you the question we all know your answer to. Maybe not, but. <laughs> I'm going to do well. I'm going to first, I'm going to start off by giving the Jaws scale. Yep. If you rank a movie as Jaws, you're saying it's an all time classic, great movie, very, very little wrong with it at all. And if they're, you know, whatever it is, is pretty much negligible. Uh, Jaws 2. Solid movie, rewatchable, very enjoyable, but just not quite at the level of classic. Jaws 3, watchable, but nothing special. Jaws 4, a bad movie. Irredeemable Shag. Yes, sir. Is this movie, where does this movie fall on the Jaws scale? It's, I'm not going to say it's Jaws. It's not. And if and if Smokey and the Bandit doesn't rate Jaws on this film, nothing does. Or on the show, I mean, nothing does. But um, I think I've rated quite a few movies as Jaws already, but you keep going on. <laughs> It is. It, it's somewhere between Jaws one and two is where this thing actually sits. If for me, it's it's somewhere between Jaws one and two. If if I'm not allowed to pick a incremental one, I would have to go with Jaws two. But I would say it's more like Jaws one point five. You you uh, will not be the first one to give an incremental. Okay. So you are allowed to do that. Uh, you know, you could kind of say what, what what I've been steering people towards is it a Jaws minus. Or is it a Jaws 2 Plus? Hmm. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. It's a Jaws 2 Plus. Okay. And that's fair. I think that's a fair rating from you. No, oh, you think oh, oh, oh. I'm telling you, don't say Jaws 4 because I'm ready. To, my, my, <laughs> the, I got a full tank of gas. I'm just saying. Well, I, th I think I rated Top Gun as a Jaws 3. I, I think you did. I think you did. And I like this more than Jaws, than Top Gun. All right. So right off the bat, we're, 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 Jaws 3 would be the, the floor considering I like this more. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is at the level of classic. Now, again, I've seen this twice. I saw it in 1987 on VHS. Wow, 10 years before it even came out. That's impressive. Excuse me, 1997. Boy, can I misspeak more. <laughs> uh, so 1997 on VHS, and I saw it a week and a half ago. Um, I think it's a solid movie. It was entertaining. It was enjoyable. It served its purpose. It was not meant to be high art. Mm-hmm. 
And that that's something I have to factor into it because, you know, if it was trying, if it had higher aspirations, you could consider this movie to be a failure. Right. But it didn't have higher aspirations and it didn't thumb its nose at the audience. It didn't it didn't give you that if you don't appreciate us, it's because you don't understand us kind of mm. feeling some of these movies do. Mm-hmm. I, I felt it, it again. It served its purpose. I think it's very solidly a Jaws two movie. In my All opinion. right, okay. I can continue our friendship. That's perfect. <laughs> there you go. I would hate to lose a friendship over this, but I'd be willing <laughs> to if I didn't like the movie. Oh, oh, oh. good thing we're not talking about Joe vs. the volcano. <laughs> I have to be. I have to be true to my art. <laughs> Fair enough. It is your show, after all, sir. There you go. But yeah, I, I I do feel it was solid. It's solid entertainment. This, this is a movie that I think would hold up to repeated viewings. And part of the reason is because it doesn't try to be high art. Mm-hmm. I think if it tried too hard to give you that backstory that we talked about it missing. It might have gone into the boring end of things or the maudlin end of things. And it just might have been kind of a, a, a noble failure. Mm-hmm. And, and if the cast had been any less playing those stereotypes, it also could have fallen into a failure, being a bunch of characters you don't care about. But they they just had enough screen time, enough good lines, enough of uh, innate acting ability to make themselves likable, that it works. Yeah, I totally agree. Woohoo! So, that's it for Twister. Take Please that. feel free to write in to, you know, email in at jawspodcast at gmail.com. I get precious little email. Hmm. So I'd be interested in hearing if people agree, disagree, uh, or if you have other movies that you'd like to hear us talk about. Uh, Shag will be back here eventually. Heck yeah. But I don't think it's going to happen too soon because we have a tough time syncing our schedules. Really as much do. as we enjoy getting on together, we, we don't have the time that lines up all that often. And we have other projects in mind that we want to do that might – dealing with comics that might uh, appreciate anything with movies. Yeah, that's true too. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And, Shay, thanks a lot for coming on. I'd like you to pimp your network before you leave, though. Well, I just want to say thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it, Paul. You and I, we've been buddies for a long time. We don't we don't get to talk all that much, but when we do, like, you know, Facebook chats and stuff like that, like that, I mean, it's, it's always very meaningful. We, we have uh, some shared emotional touch points in our past, and uh, I really appreciate your friendship, and I really appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, it's I'm, I'm, I, if I was capable of blushing, I would right now. <laughs> it's where you had those glands removed. I forgot. Um, you can find me over on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, where we have our own movie show called Film and Water, uh, where Rob is uh, just consistently turning people down on on ideas. And and Paul Rob is a tyrant. He is. He's horrible. And 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 Paul is so nice to have us over here. So we really appreciate it. And also, I do a, a number of shows over there. I do an Aquaman and Firestorm show. I really shouldn't lead with that because that's not a big selling point. Do a show on Who's Who, Justice League International, and a whole another a whole number of other shows. We've also got uh, you know tons of genre stuff. We've got Star Wars, we've got Star Trek, we've got music, all kinds of stuff. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as like uh, the guys. You, you know, you ever see the Walking Dead show? How you've got you know the one camp of Rick Grimes' group, and then you have you know the governor and his town and stuff like that. I like to think of us as you know those two towns in The Walking Dead, and uh, you can pick Absolutely which team is war. which, but. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks a lot for coming on. This was a lot of fun.